That's a huge issue sort of across the board with being able to repair things. Um, And there's a lot of legislation out right now really focused on this right to repair so that when a consumer owns something, you know, that they should have the ability, they should have the right to be able to repair that, that they require manufacturers to actually have replacement parts, repair parts in stock and available. Having something like a parts list, even making kind of like troubleshooting guides available. So we are a community-based nonprofit. We manage an inventory of about 4,500 tools, and those are available to our members. They sign up. It's an annual membership starting at just $30 a year. And our goal really is to remove cost as a barrier to people being able to fix up their homes, to repair their own items, to grow their own food, and to improve their communities. Welcome to Mindful Businesses, presented by Sarani, and I'm your host, Vedya Ayer. In our podcast, we bring to you businesses that are mindful in their practices and processes. A mindful business is one that employs sustainable social, economic, and environmental practices. Today, we have with us Darren Khan, Executive Director of The Tool Library, Borrow Tools, community. He joins us from Buffalo, New York. Welcome, Darren. Thank you so much for having me. In this modern era, where there are over 11 billion mobile phone connections for the 8 billion global population, and where 85% of the world's population owns a mobile phone, the problem of e-waste has compounded. This invention is different than other inventions like, say, the TV, where it was shared one per household, maybe a couple of households or even a community would share a TV or electronic device or even a landline. What is the extent of the e-waste in our present time? It's obviously one of the fastest growing uh, segments of the waste management sector. And, you know, I think the difficulty is, especially in this country, you know, when we toss something, throw it in the garbage, we don't necessarily see where that ends up. You know, it's not in our backyard, it's not in our communities. So whether or not it feels like something that is super pertinent to us, I think that's where we really struggle. You know, so much e-waste ends up being exported to other countries, ends up going into landfills and really degradating the environment of all of these other countries that we don't necessarily see on a daily basis, but that are impacting people's lives, entire communities' health, issues with groundwater, soil contamination, you know, you name it. And so I think we really have to bring those challenges to the forefront and think about how can we, you know, from the root source, how do we eliminate the need to throw things away? When you say e-waste, what would be the broad categories? So that's anything from cell phones, tablets, all the way to, you know, I would consider things like printers, anything that you would hook up to your computer, a digital or electronic product, you know, a lot of smaller appliances, I consider e-waste as well. But a lot of these have tons of components, tons of rare earth uh, materials in them. So the amount that is getting thrown out. And again, the fact that we then need to then go mine, manufacture all of these materials over again. The challenge of why these electronic products are disposable or we don't even bother to repair is that 
the manufacturers have made it in such a way that it is very difficult to repair. Like I remember growing up, we used to have a landline and there used to be a loose wire connection. As a teenager, I would open it, connect up the wires, make sure they're tight and close it up, right? Now they make it in such a way you would need very special equipment or a machinery to open it up to be able to repair. That's a huge issue sort of across the board with being able to repair things. Um, And there's a lot of legislation out right now really focused on this right to repair so that when a consumer owns something, you know, that they should have the ability, they should have the right to be able to repair that. And to your point, you know, manufacturers have really moved towards this idea of manufactured obsolescence, plan obsolescence. And really in that, it's a profit motive. So if people are repairing things, That means that they're buying less new things. That means that the margins that companies are seeing are slimmer. And so they want to incentivize people to throw something out and buy something new because there's that much more profit to be made in something like that. Not necessarily taking into account, you know, the long-term costs to the environment, to ourselves. So that's the challenge. There are very strong right to repair laws and legislations in Europe. What rights do they give consumers specifically? For instance, I think the iPhones are moving towards USB-C adapters, kind of universalizing it. So that is one part where you don't throw away your adapters, you can use it even though you buy a new version. And similarly, there are some requirements of manufacturers in Europe. What are some of those requirements? Sure. So right to repair legislation really focuses on a couple of things. One being that they require manufacturers to actually have replacement parts, repair parts in stock and available. So someone is able to order them. And I think there's typically, you know, a length of time that they need to carry something. So between five or 15 years to have sort of a stock of inventory. That's something that we've seen at the tool library where an item breaks, we call the manufacturer and they say, we don't manufacture replacement parts. And even further, we had a KitchenAid, you know, the mixer. It's pricey. It's about $350. And I was determined to repair it. It was so difficult to get the parts list. We probably spent over $150 buying the wrong parts. And in the meantime, we had opened and played around with it that we lost some of the little gears which were there and which were impossible to find again or even understand what's the part list. Yeah, so access to information, that's another huge one. Having something like a parts list, even making kind of like troubleshooting guides available. And again, the manufacturer's perspective is intellectual property, copyright infringement. So they are afraid of third-party pair companies coming in potentially like using proprietary software or hardware. Those are typically just tools that they're using to block people's ability to repair these things. So you don't think they are genuine issues where a person could reverse engineer based on the parts list, based on other information and take away the manufacturer's proprietary competitive edge for that product? I mean, I think you see examples of manufacturers that are moving towards a manufacturing process that is very much more circular, where they don't necessarily, they aren't as concerned with that. Like, yeah, I think there are certain protections that need to be in place and that I think right to repair legislation can certainly include. 
those sorts of protections, but not necessarily using that as a shield to avoid any sort of responsibility to either making this information available or making the parts available that are necessary for the repair to, to actually be successful. You know, whether it's smartphone manufacturers or computer manufacturers or small appliances, you know, there are brands that are beginning to really embody this idea of circularity, sustainability, and are really making these things much easier and much more accessible to people. And again, there are always workarounds too, like one of the tools at the tool library, we couldn't find a replacement part. So we had one of our volunteers had a 3D printer and he was able to 3D print a replacement part. But again, you know, who has access to those sorts of tools and equipment to be able to do that? But otherwise that tool would have been, you know, unusable. So we both met for the first time at the Repair Cafe in Buffalo, New York. Talk about what... You do. You are the executive director of the Tool Library. What is the Tool Library? So we are a community-based nonprofit. We manage an inventory of about 4,500 tools, and those are available to our members. They sign up. It's an annual membership starting at just $30 a year, and our goal really is to remove cost as a barrier to people being able to fix up their homes, to repair their own items, to grow their own food, and to improve their communities. So we really want to take that tool that may cost four or $500 and make it accessible to anyone, regardless of their ability to afford that, regardless of where they're coming from, what their backgrounds are. So our goal really is this idea of accessibility. You know, with that comes this idea of sustainability, the fact that not everyone needs to own one of everything, that we can, as a community, share these items and use them when we need them. Dare to Repair Cafes were a really fantastic outgrowth of kind of that initial idea uh, when we started back in 2011. We partnered with the City of Buffalo Recycling Department in 2017 to launch our first Dare to Repair Cafes. And these are pop-up events held at community locations. So libraries, schools, community centers, they are free and open to the public. They are typically once a month. And we have an incredible team of volunteer fixers. So these are engineers, retired teachers, kind of people from all over the place that really just love tinkering, figuring things out, troubleshooting problems. Uh, so they donate their time for three to four hours a month. We encourage community members to come out, bring broken items. So again, you know, whether it's a KitchenAid stand mixer, a vacuum, a lamp, a video game system, and to come out and actually work alongside one of our fixers to figure out what's wrong, what the problem is, can it be repaired, and how do you actually make that repair? Where do you get the tools from? Are they donations or you purchase them? The overwhelming majority of our tools have been donations, whether from community members or other organizations. And these are, you know, hand tools all the way up to things like circular saws, lawnmowers, weed whackers. We've been really uh, fortunate to get a number of grants that have helped us actually go out and sort of buy the items that haven't been donated. And then we've also gotten support from some tool manufacturers where they will basically provide us, you know, $5,000 in-kind donations of items and tools. So when you said weed whackers and circular saw, the first thing that comes to my mind is liability. Are the folks who pick up trained to use these or do you give them some, offer some training or do you just make them sign this waiver which then absolves you of making sure that the tool is used properly 
without harm to themselves or even to the tool. When members do sign up, they are signing off on a waiver and indemnification that basically says, you know, when they are taking ownership of a tool, they understand how to use it, uh, that they'll use it in a safe manner and in the way the tool was meant to be used. Uh, but we do have a really fantastic crew of staff and volunteers who are happy to walk uh, members through how to use items as well. I mean, when I started the tool library, the last time I had used a power tool was probably in middle school. Um, so it has definitely been a learning experience for me. And I've been super grateful that people have taught me along the way. And there's so much that comes with that, you know, just the sense of confidence, of accomplishment, of really being able to feel like you can do something yourself. And I will say one of our uh, staff members, Lissa, she went through a trades training program and she said, you know, kind of as a woman, the ability to have those skills, to be able to build things, to understand tools, just how empowering that is. And I think that's really the experience that we want for our members to feel like you know, this is something they can do. It's a skill that they can learn and they can build the confidence to be able to do, you know, what they want to do to have that agency in their life. What is the most popular tool that gets checked out? Very much is seasonally based. Uh, so right now, although we are closed for the move, we still are kind of trying to plow through our wait list. And right now, as you can imagine, with gardening season really kicking into high gear, our rototillers are super popular. I would say we've got some really fantastic battery-powered lawnmowers for folks. Pressure washers are a huge thing right now, um, just like cleaning off your driveway and back deck. Chainsaws also really popular, taking out, you know, old branches, old brush. So it really kind of depends on the season as we get more into like fall, you know, late summer, early fall. Then you see the leaf blowers, obviously, the rakes, more of those kind of cleanup tools. But yeah, we try to kind of adjust accordingly and really focus where we buy our inventory based on what our members' needs are. So are they readily available or is there a wait time and what is the process of checking out a tool? So we do maintain an online inventory and that way people can see whether items are available, whether they are currently checked out or whether they are waitlisted. So again, like during our busy seasons, we may have up to a dozen different items on the waitlist. So things like the rototiller, the pressure washer. Unfortunately, as a library, you don't necessarily always have the number of things you need all at once when everyone needs them. And so the waitlist kind of just helps us make sure that everyone eventually will get what they need when we are able to provide that. There can be a bit of a wait for some of the items, but that just kind of comes, again, I think with the territory of shifting from this idea of consumerism to this idea of sharing and collaboratively consuming these items. Like there are always going to be trade-offs of you don't get it immediately. You know, you don't have that instant satisfaction, but you know that you are part of this larger community that is helping everyone. You mentioned a move from where the tool library moved from and where are you located now? So for about 12 years, we were located at 5 West Northrop Place, uh, right off of Main Street and University Heights. We closed, our last day open there was Saturday the 27th, and we will be closed until Wednesday, June 21st, 
one will reopen at our new location, and that's about a mile south down Main Street, right at 2626 Main Street. So we're in between the Vernon Triangle and right next to the Amherst Street Metro Station, which we're really excited about. Again, you know, thinking about accessibility, we want everyone to have access to our inventory. So having that transit connection is super exciting for us. So who founded the Tool Library? I started the Tool Library while I was actually getting my master's degree at UB, University at Buffalo. So I was in the Master's of Urban and Regional Planning program and really interested in, you know, community development. There was a lot of really interesting, I think, grassroots initiatives taking off across the city when I was in school. And I was just noticing, you know, lots of issues in University Heights with absentee landlords, with abandoned properties, with people not having access to the things they needed to, you know, be able to address some of the challenges in their homes. And I was also living off campus in an apartment with a not so fantastic landlord, you know, improve things, do little DIY projects as a college student, didn't have access, didn't have the money, didn't have the space to store these things. And so that's really kind of where the idea for the tool library came from. How do we create this community resource where anyone, whether they're a student, whether they're a retiree, whether they're a new homeowner, you know, they can come to this centralized community space, access the tools that they need them, use them when they do, and then return them when they don't. And someone else has access to that same thing. So it was a really exciting opportunity for me, I think, to put a lot of what I had learned through the planning program into practice and really see how the tool library can touch on so many quality of life issues that I think we all experience in Buffalo and across the country. So how did you take this idea, a noble one at that, make it a reality? A lot of help, a lot of friends, a lot of supporters, a lot of folks in the community who I think saw the value in the idea and were really there from the beginning to help support it and help it grow. I worked initially with a friend who was getting his MBA from UB to put together a really basic business plan. Um, It was my first business plan and was able to secure some seed funding from the city of Buffalo through their community development block grant funding. So that was kind of the seed funding that we needed for rent, for kind of overhead that first year to purchase, you know, our first 40 or 50 tools. And ever since then, it has really just been this fantastic, supportive community of members. So membership dues obviously help sustain us. Lots of grant writing, lots of fundraising. We have uh, an annual garden party every August that helps kind of sustain us. But yeah, for the first 10 years, we were completely volunteer run. So we had no staff. So that obviously helps with keeping costs low, but it also makes operations exceedingly challenging as anyone with an all volunteer organization knows all too well. So we are kind of in the process of now we've gotten to a point where we just need kind of that support, that staff capacity. So last year we added our first part-time person, Lissa, as our operations manager. And this year I stepped into the role of executive director, but we're both still two part-time people. And we've got a membership of over 1,250 active members. We're excited by the growth. We're excited for this new location, but still lots of challenges and lots of infrastructure that we still need to build internally. I'd like to let our listeners know, if you believe in this cause, 
go to the two libraries donate page or become a member to help support this venture. Yeah, absolutely. So we have membership starts at $30 a year, and then we have a $75 tier and a $150 tier. And those get you access to more tools at once. You know, it's really just dependent on how comfortable at what level that you can support our organization. So if you're able to support us at the $75 or $150 level, that means we can really focus on our mission, focus on the programs that drive us and focus less on fundraising and grant writing. So why was it important for this to be a 501c3 nonprofit? You could potentially have made it a business venture. Why not make it a for-profit? For instance, the hardware stores like Lowe's and Home Depot, you can always rent it there. So why did you choose the path of making it a nonprofit? Again, I think it just gets back to our core tenant of accessibility, the idea that everyone should have access to the same things regardless of how much money they make or, you know, what their socioeconomic status is. And again, if you go to a lot of these rental places, you know, you're looking at hundreds of dollars in costs. And again, like not everyone can afford that. And so being a nonprofit certainly has its challenges, but it also allows us to ensure that we can really meet people where they are and that we can reach the people who would benefit most from our service. And then for those who are able to give more, that there is an incentive through making a tax deductible donation to support the work that we're doing. But we really want to be mission driven. We don't want to be driven by how much money can we make? You know, what are our profit margins? I think our membership model is great in that it gives us flexibility and it provides us a portion of the funding that we need to sustain the overall operations. But I just don't think that we would ever be self-sufficient on membership dues alone because Again, it would have to be so cost prohibitively expensive that we sort of defeat the purpose of the tool library. You are located in the city of Buffalo. Looks like they have been a valuable partner in this venture. You host the Dare to Repair Cafes with the city of Buffalo. And you mentioned they happen once a month. What is the impact of the Dare to Repair Cafe? I think there are so many different metrics that we can kind of use to quantify our impact. So some really easy ones would be, you know, number of items that we've diverted from the landfill. I remember this because it made me weigh the thing that I repaired. It was a tea kettle and they made me weigh it. And they said, you prevented X pounds from going to the landfill. Again, that's like a very tangible, immediate, like people kind of get the aha, oh, wow, yeah, that would have gone to the landfill and contributed to this issue that we're experiencing across the country and across the globe. So to date, we've diverted just over 600 items from the landfill, and that's about 5,500 pounds of waste that have been diverted. So again, like super tangible, like 5,500 pounds, I don't know, like two and a half cars, which is pretty impressive for volunteer powered initiative. And I think about, you know, this is just in Buffalo. So what if we were to replicate this in every town, every city, every village, if we had the supportive structure to have repair cafes, you know, the amount of potential waste that we could divert, I think is just astronomical. And also, not only that you prevented it from going into the landfills, it also reduced the resources to remake that thing. 
So for instance, if you take the tea kettle that I brought in, it's a simple electric tea kettle with a hot plate and it had steel, it had plastic, energy to make the steel, to make the product, transport it, pack it. So many things are eliminated by this, the half an hour spent with the help of your volunteers fixing the electric tea kettle. And that's something that we would love to, it's on our radar right now to be able to quantify that impact. Because again, from the idea of sharing is great for building community, but it's also great for the environment. And it's great for the challenges that we're facing with climate change. A tool library in Scotland has developed a methodology to actually determine how much carbon is offset by a person borrowing a tool versus going out and buying it. So based on what the tool is made out of, how much the tool weighs, they're able to make a pretty close approximation of X number of pounds of carbon were diverted. In a dream scenario, we'll be able to go through every year and say, you know, our members by borrowing have offset 15 tons of carbon. And same thing for Dare to Repair Cafe. If we have a general sense of what the item is made out of, what its weight is, we could actually calculate this is how much carbon we're offsetting by repairing that item and ensuring that it's not going into a landfill. So that's really exciting. And I think that is not necessarily a solution that tends to get talked about a lot when we think about how do we transition to a green, clean future. You know, there's talk about all of this new technology. There's talk about renewables, but it's like repair is such a low hanging fruit. And the amount of things that like, to your point, all the materials that it saves, all the manufacturing and the transportation costs like it's a domino effect so how often are the dare to repair cafes it's once a month is it on a particular saturday or a sunday yeah so it's typically once a month for the repair cafes in the city of buffalo we do partner directly with the city of buffalo recycling department and then we do have repair cafes in some of the surrounding suburbs as well and then in july we'll be back into the city uh, we'll be at the delavan grider community center on July 15th. And again, our goal really is to visit different parts of the city, different parts of Western New York. So to make something like Dare to Repair uh, more accessible to people and different communities. And it's open and free to all. And you don't have to be a member of the tool library to attend the Dare to Repair Cafe, which is manned by very talented volunteers who will assist you or will repair the item for you. Yes, we are so incredibly grateful to our volunteer fixers, without which Dare to Repair Cafe would cease to exist. I myself am more of a admin, check people in, take photos, have fixed a few things in my own home, but I am still working on building that confidence to be able to fix someone else's items. But we have an incredible team of fixers. It's always such a fun event. Like everyone is always in a good mood. People are smiling. Like you go away, hopefully with an item that's working, but hopefully with a new set of skills and a new sense of confidence too. Like that's one of the intangible things I think that Dare to Repair really does is giving people the ability to repair these things, hopefully themselves, the next time something breaks. There are a bunch of repair cafes in Amsterdam, Europe. I know for sure in Amsterdam, I'm not sure which other countries they're in. How is your repair cafe different than theirs? Or are they all fairly similar? 
Yeah, I think a lot of them kind of subscribe to the same sort of core principles of this idea of waste reduction, but also this idea of teaching and hands-on kind of demonstrations and really it not just being a repair service where you come and drop something off, but it's more of an experience where you come, you learn, you know, you get your hands dirty, you use tools, and hopefully, again, like you have that confidence to then make that repair in the future. There's an International Repair Cafe Foundation. So for anyone out there who maybe has, you know, a handful of friends who are super handy, and you're like, we could totally do this. We literally started with no funding, no space. We just put a call out for people who like to fix things. We got a really fantastic response. We held our first repair cafe at our old location. Again, super successful. And it's just sort of, you know, the momentum has built from there. One of the major impacts, which is an obvious impact, is the cost of landfills in the United States. Very close to where you are and where I am in the town of Tanawanda, just about eight miles from the city of Buffalo, was one of the largest landfills in Western New York. Even the radioactive contaminants from the Manhattan Project were in that landfill. I believe from what I've read, the landfill in the town of Tanawanda has been cleaned up. The cost of sending things to the landfill is still very low in the United States. How can we make sure that the costs are don't incentivize as a consumer as a manufacturer, as a city government, to send more things to the landfill. And in the present situation, it's easier, it's cheaper for me to just put it in the trash can, just close my eyes and let somebody else take care of it, either in the state side in the United States or whichever country is, is willing to take our trash. It's a great question. I think one of the challenges, to your point, is that it is so cheap because so many of the costs are externalized. So when I get my user fee from the city, I'm always astonished with how cheap it is because it's like, this is not the true cost of what it takes to transport all of these trash, to then store it off site somewhere. But again, like a lot of those true costs are not paid for by the municipality or the waste management company. They're paid for by all of us, by the public issues like soil and groundwater contamination. And again, for those items that are shipped off to another country, all of those externalized costs sort of falling on to those people and those communities. And so I think as important as right to repair legislation is, I think policy around waste management is just as important. And one of the challenges is, okay, well, then who pays for it? And I think that's where we have to shift the cost from residents or consumers to manufacturers. So it incentivizes them from the beginning to sort of plan for waste management and waste mitigation and move away from this idea of we live in a linear economy where we, you know, make it, we use it up and we dump it and really transition towards a circular economy where we keep things in circulation and being used for as long as possible. And I think repair is a really important part of that. But I do think new engineering processes, new manufacturing processes, all of these things all need to come together. So it is a much larger conversation than just raising the cost of user fees or 
creating smaller trash totes. Like it's all of these interconnected things that I think policymakers really have to be looking at from a holistic standpoint, you know, not only economic, but environmental and really rethinking how we do structure the economy and how we structure waste management in the country. I hope our conversation today will trigger conversations in communities, in families, in how they dispose and use and repair their electronics. Thank you so much, Darren, for coming on Mindful Businesses. Thank you so much for having me. This was an absolute pleasure. You're listening to Mindful Businesses, produced and hosted by Vidya Ayer. We'd love to hear from you. Send an email to info at mindfulbusinessespodcast.com. If you learned a thing or two from this episode, share it with one friend. Click on the subscribe button to be the first to learn about our latest episodes. We recorded this podcast in Buffalo, New York. Theme music was composed by Tatum Gale. Roseanne Korean is our marketing assistant. Ketan Karat is our podcast editor. Our advisors are Jim Stone and Anupama Pasricha. This is Vidya Ayer with Mindful Businesses.